If you're a veteran or military spouse of another stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Lives branding team. Today on the show, I'm joined by AJ Yawn, a former Division I basketball player from Florida State University, an Army captain, and co-founder of ByteCheck, an early-stage B2B SaaS company that builds, manages, and assesses a company's cybersecurity program in order to build trust with customers and unlock sales. ByteCheck recently raised $3 million in seed funding from predominantly Black investors. Despite AJ's military background, expertise in cybersecurity, and status as a former D1 athlete, he struggled raising capital from non-Black investors. It's unfortunate, but this is a recurring trend amongst many of our talented, underrepresented entrepreneurs within the Barker Lab ecosystem, which is why it's important for us to get these stories out so those of you that are raising venture capital understand the challenges ahead and how to navigate them. On the show, AJ opens up about how he succeeded in his raise despite the adversity he faced, the importance of family and mental health, and the lessons he's learned building his first startup. I'm telling y'all, you're in for a treat in today's episode. Before you hear from AJ and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter at least once a week, sharing the latest episode of The Transition, and if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org. Also, join the new Bunker Online community on the Mighty Networks platform at the link in the show notes as well. It's a great place to connect with other entrepreneurs in the Bunker Lab ecosystem. You can follow me and let's engage each other's content on Bunker Online. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. AJ, what's going on, man? Welcome to the bunker. Appreciate it, appreciate it. I'm, I'm in the grind, doing well, and blessed to be here and talking to you today, Mike. I'm excited, y'all. AJ's uh, swagged up. Uh, he's got his bite check t-shirt on. He's got his chain on. Got his AirPods in. I think those are like the AirPod 5 Pro, you know, so uh, it's going to be good today. So, AJ, do me a favor and go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, I'm, I'm AJ Yan. I'm the founder and CEO of ByteCheck, a cybersecurity software company based out of Miami, Florida. I've been in the cybersecurity industry for a little over a decade now. Started my career in the U.S. Army as a uh, Army signal officer. Uh, did six years on active duty. Um, spent some time at Benning, at Gordon, a lot of time at Bragg, a couple deployments. Realize, you know, I like I like um, sleeping inside versus sleeping outside, and I like being in America a lot more than being outside of America. So I, I got out of the army um, and landed in a cybersecurity consulting gig for a few years, where um, I helped grow a team from about nine of us to well over 130. We were doing all kinds of cybersecurity compliance assessments. I was traveling all over the world doing this stuff, and I got exposed to a lot in the space and realized there was a huge opportunity to build a business in this cybersecurity compliance industry. Uh, so I took a chance in the middle of a pandemic and uh, started building ByteCheck, the cybersecurity software startup. 
uh, that we help companies achieve their compliance goals. When I say compliance, I'm talking about SOC 2 or ISO or HIPAA, or any of those three-letter, four-letter acronyms that you've heard of. We help automate that entire process and make it super easier for people to uh, to get through those things and get some security value out of it. Um, but you know, everything really started for me in the army. You know, I'm a I'm a military brat by trade. You know, my dad is a marine, a non-commissioned officer, so I was raised by a marine and um, always knew the military was going to play an important role in my life. And it definitely kicked off my cybersecurity career, and I think is a huge reason why I'm here today. So AJ, you're also a Division One basketball player, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Played at Florida State University. And the funny story about my Army career is it was supposed to start in 2010 after my season ended at Florida State University. And not a lot of people know this story, Mike, so this is going to be a good one for the for the pod. My head coach, who's currently the head coach of Florida State University, Coach Leonard Hamilton, um, called me uh, after the season ended. It was like, hey, AJ, you, you want to come back for another year? And I'm like, of course I want to come back for another year. Like, who, who wouldn't want to play another year of D1 basketball? I was like, but I got this whole army thing. I got orders. I have to be um, at Fort Gordon and I'm going to Fort Hood in October. He was like, I don't worry about this. And anybody that's heard stories about Coach Ham knows Coach Ham thinks he's like the most powerful man in America and can do whatever he wants, um, like your typical old black dude that just, you know, has that type of swagger. Two weeks later, I get a call from my battalion commander and he's like, yeah, I don't know what happened, but um, your orders are changed. You're now reporting in May of 2011. You're no longer reporting in October. You're coming back for another year. But my battalion commander was like, but we're not paying for it. You're a commissioned officer now. You're not a student no more. So we can't pay for your school. I don't know what you're going to do there. I was like, I don't care, man. I'm going to come back another year and hoop. I went over to the basketball facility to thank Coach Ham. And on the table, he has a scholarship for me to be on scholarship for another year. And his whole motivation for bringing me back was because he said he didn't want me to deploy. He was like, I know you're eventually going to have to deploy, but I would like to hold it off one more year. And I think you add value to the team and brought me back on scholarship. So I ended up playing two years after in my early part of my time, breaking both ankles. And it was, you know, time, time, best time of my life. There's nothing like being a D1 athlete in the ACC at Florida State University. And, and we met to the Sweet 16 and, and I have lifelong memories and lifelong teammates that, uh, you know, just you can't beat. That's great. And I'm sure they appreciate the kind of leadership you probably brought to the team because that mentality, like, again, I told you before we went live. I ran a residence hall with D1 basketball players for like three years here in Newark. And I know the personality and mentalities around that culture. And a lot of people aren't thinking military. That's a whole different <laughs> kind of beast. So I'm sure that the coach appreciated the kind of caliber of leadership you brought to the team and the maturity. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, actually considered a captain, even though I wasn't playing as much my last year. And one of the reasons, one of the ways I became a captain was using something I did in the military. We after action reviews, you always do those after every kind of mission or something. You do an AAR. I started bringing those from every practice. Every practice, we'd get together as a team, just players, and do an after action review and say what went well, what went wrong, and how can we improve. And that level of accountability for you know kids that are 18, 19, McDonald's All Americans, they they walk on water. That was the first time they were being held accountable and being held accountable by their peers, which is you know, gave gave everyone a lot of respect, but I owe it to the training I got in the military of being a leader. And I wasn't scared to, you know, lead my, my teammates during um, during that time. So, yeah, definitely. I think that played a role. And I was just so happy about the opportunity, you know, what I'm saying just to have a jersey with my name on the back, to be at that level, to, to think back of all the people who told me I'd never be able to do that. I was every day in practice and workouts, it didn't matter what we were doing. I'm hyped because I just thought I took a look at it as a blessing and enjoyed the experience. And that energy is contagious on a team. As you know, you know, seeing somebody that's always ready to be there, put the work in, in the gym, first one in the gym, last one to leave type of energy. 
um, that the, the coaches definitely appreciated that. How do you think they appreciate the fact that not only were you a Division One athlete at Florida State, but now you're a venture back tech founder as an African American male? I'm just gonna say that because there ain't a lot of us out there. Yeah, I actually was uh, in Tallahassee a couple of weeks ago at our men's basketball reunion that they do every year, and um, the love was just great, man. It's always been love though before I even started this company, but now you know with the position and platform that I have. Um, they understand the impact that I could have for for current players and, and you know, what they might do in their career. Because not everybody's going pro. Not everybody's going to go to the NBA. Not everybody's going to have a long career overseas. So you got to start to think about what are the other things I'm going to do after basketball. Um, and, you know, I just hope that I can always represent Florida State the right way uh, and give back all the things that they gave to me, um, being an athlete there and the love that they still showed me. I just want to continue to give that back to them because it, it's a special place in, in my journey for sure. Love it, man. I'm excited to do a deep dive on your story. But before we do that, we got to take off our armor, AJ. So, you know, there's a lot of shows out there where entrepreneurs just talk about how amazing they are and they post on social media and people think it's uh, sunshine and rainbows all the time. But for those of us in the hustle, you know, we know it's not like that. And so what's something that you're struggling with either personally or professionally as a founder right now? Yeah, I think um, the hardest part about this journey is how lonely it is. Uh, it's very hard to have people that understand what you're going through and what it takes to do this. The level of commitment, the level of mental uh, focus on your business and your livelihood, you're really betting it all. Um, and, and for me, that's you know super, super serious. I left a job where I was making a quarter of a million dollars a year, um, doing well, making more money than I've ever thought of I'd ever make in my life, more money than my, my family's ever made in their life. And I walked away from it all. Um, and I walked away from it all to start this. And, and that sacrifice of putting it all on the line um, was, was is you feel it on a daily basis. And it's hard to explain that to other people. Um, and, I'll you know, as we're taking the shield off, one of the things I struggled with in the early days is the mental warfare associated with being a founder uh, and the mental health. A focus that you have to have. And I had to take a break. Um, um, February of 2021, I wrote an article about it, about me stepping away because I wanted to share to people that like, it's okay to not be okay. I was depressed. I was fatigued. I had a ton of anxiety about things that were going on with the company. And I had to take two days off because I really felt the pressure of like not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to be around anymore. Um, and ever since then, I've been super vocal about mental health because I think the most important thing you can do as a founder is not your knowledge, it's not the business, it's not investment, it's how are you protecting yourself and your brain? Because this stuff is hard, man. Like the mental warfare of like every decision you make, uh, you don't know how it's going to work out until later on. And then now as I grow, I have people who put their families uh, on the line there, the way they provide for their family on the line here from an idea that I started. There's pressure there, man. And that pressure doesn't go away. So you got to constantly battle that by doing things like meditating, going to therapy, taking breaks, doing the little things to protect your mental health. And it's something that I, I try to every time somebody asks me, like, what's the most important thing you can teach in, in an aspiring founder or entrepreneur? I'm like, protect your mental health, build strategies right now, do things from a mindfulness perspective to make sure that you are protected up here between your two eyes, because if you don't do that, you're not going to make it. Um, as you know, it's, it's just, this is a difficult journey, man. And it's all difficult because of what's going on up in your head. And I appreciate you sharing that, man. And uh, I can 100% relate that mental warfare is real. Uh, I think about when I first started my venture, I couldn't even sleep, you know, because I could just think about money coming out of my bank account. I was like, I got to get up. I got to make money. And then you meditate, you're working out, you're doing all this stuff. And then you get successful and you get busier. 
and you quit doing all the stuff that made you successful. So when that storm comes again, you ain't got your practice going. And so now it's just like you find yourself in this in this rut. You know, for me, I'm I'm constantly having to catch myself and say, Mike, you're a dope entrepreneur. You know, you're a dope entrepreneur. And I'll tell you, I'm gonna take off my armor now. I am I one of the things that's a challenge as an entrepreneur is to trust ourselves, right? So when we make decisions, right, more often than not, we make a decision for a reason. Like I made the decision to write a book, right? Because that's one of the things I want to do. But then fast forward five months from now, nonprofits going, for profits going, girlfriend, all this stuff. And part of you is like, why in the hell did I agree to do this? And it's like you want to quit, you know, because you got all these other obligations. But it go, it's going back and saying, hey, I made this decision for a reason. Again, it ain't always going to be smooth, but trust yourself and push forward. And when I'm feeling low, again, I remind myself, Mike, you're a dope entrepreneur. If you made this decision, you did it for a reason. Now just keep pushing. Yeah, and that's facts. It's like you got to um, – I remind myself all the time, like, hey, this is supposed to be hard. Like, <laughs> like I'm go, you know, you're going through it. You got to say, like, hey, like, would you think this was going to be easy? Like, the whole this whole thing that you knew you were going into, 90% of these things fell. So unless you want to just quit and be a part of that 90%, keep going. The, the You got to go through the mud to get there. And actually, I was just before I came on the pod with you, I was taking a shower and I was thinking, um, I was going to send a tweet out about how like I'm transitioning from being my biggest critic to my number one fan. And that transition has been beautiful, man. It's been so dope to tell yourself you're a dope entrepreneur. You're making the right decisions. People entrusted you with this much money because you know what you're doing, because you can build a big business out of this. And you got to be that. You got to you got to boost yourself, because if you sit there and think so much, like you said, not even being able to sleep. I've been there. It, it weighs on you. And it's it's difficult. Well, again, man, it's good to have you here because your experience, these kind of experiences, you know, this is what the community appreciates. I get the messages all the time on social, how much this podcast helps them get through the day, especially when you start talking about the mental health piece and everything. And I'm sure more of this is going to come out as we talk about your story. And then for our listeners tuning in, I want to say this. There is never a right time to start your venture. There's never a perfect time to write your book. There's never a perfect time to go to the gym, right? Part of this is just, you know, making the most of what you have, you know, taking the time now and just acting, you know? And that's one of the lessons I've learned along the way is like, damn, man, there's never this perfect time where like the stars align. You're like, I'm about to go raise this capital and launch this venture. You know, people make their own luck. Exactly. Exactly. You got to have a bias for action. You got to decide that I'm just going to do something. I'm just going to just going to act on the, the thing that I want to do. And you can't wait for the perfect circumstances because there's always an excuse of why you shouldn't do it. There's always a reason why you can't do it right now because of kids, because of the pandemic, because of this. And at some point you got to ask yourself, are like, are these legit reasons that are stopping me or is it just going to make it harder? And if it's going to make it harder, it's going to be hard anyway. So like you, you, you got to do it. One of the things I think about, I think it was Will Smith or someone said, a, told a story about like an, an old man told him on your deathbed, around your deathbed, there's going to be a bunch of ghosts of the, the things that you wish you would have done. And they're going to ask you, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? And, and for my, for me, goal, my goal is I don't want any of them ghosts to be there. I don't want there to be any ghost on my deathbed to say, why didn't you do it? I'm trying everything that I want to do because I know life's short and I don't have a ton of time on this earth. So I'm not trying to live with any regrets. I'm, the worst thing that can happen when you make a big bet on yourself is you fail. And when you fail, all you did was grow tremendously. I've learned so much more from losses than from wins. So I like seek out failures now. I enjoy the failure because I know if I fail at something, a bigger W is coming down the line. 
Facts. And honestly, we had Jamison Aveyal on the podcast, and his episode was uh, the importance of failing forward. So this idea of learning and growing and, uh, you know, not making the same mistakes over and over again. And uh, Jamison was one that introduced me to AJ and uh, was able to bring him on the platform. And so this even goes back to what I'm talking about now, which is Bunker Labs, uh, who we host this podcast for, a national network of veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs dedicated to helping the military connect community start their own business. I try to tell people, man, you got a community out here of veteran and military spouses. Um, I know for a lot of us that are transitioning out of the military, we don't have a network. You know, we all of us don't go to business school, et cetera. So where do you build that? And one place to start is the bunker. And so, uh, AJ, I want to ask you this. How'd you find out about Bunker Labs or what other communities do you have down there in Florida? Yeah, I, I found out about Bunker Labs when I first started building Bite Check. And um, I was just seeking out other veterans that have been through this. Uh, and because I found as I was just learning in cybersecurity before I started a business, there's a lot of vets out there that are willing to give back and that are willing to help you out because we all have been there. We all have been that transitioning veteran or that veteran trying to worry about promotions and understand the corporate politics. We've all been there and understand that. So I constantly seek out people that have had similar experiences as me uh, and that went through things. And Bunker Labs, if you do any kind of research on the startup or entrepreneurship space, you're going to see Bunker Labs. And um, Jameson, who you mentioned, is actually uh, the uh, my newest director of marketing here at ByteCheck. And one of the reasons and, and big draws to bringing him on was because he came from Bunker Labs uh, and he was already embedded in that community because I know how important it is to surround myself with vets. And then also I want ByteCheck to be super tied into the Bunker Labs community because cybersecurity is one of those things a lot of new entrepreneurs and founders do not think of. Uh, especially veteran founders and entrepreneurs that are not from a cyber background. They just want to go out and build their business. And the, the cybersecurity is one of those things that if you do it earlier, it's easier. The longer you wait, it gets more expensive and more difficult. And I'm hoping to uh, work with Bunker directly and help new veterans, new companies think about cybersecurity a lot earlier and, and have a software solution that helps them do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the biggest part about Bunker that I think is the dopest is the community aspect, like you said you got to have a community to do this. Like this stuff is so hard to go out on your own. You got to tap into those communities that you can go to. And I think the veteran community is like the biggest fraternity sorority in the world. Like we are truly brothers and sisters that look out for each other. And my experience as a founder has not been any different because of the support I've gotten from the veteran community. So now I just want to be able to give it back. It's powerful, man. It's powerful. So take us back, right? How did you become an entrepreneur? Where did this take us back to this journey of yours? Yeah, so back in um, 2018, I believe, I, I started to get a sense that there was an opportunity in the cybersecurity compliance space. I saw people were paying thousands of dollars, spending months at a time to go through this stuff. And the reason why they were doing it, it was because there was a business deal on the line. There was some value on the line. They had to get this compliance report because a million dollar contract or $100,000 contracts on the line. So I was like, okay, these, this is a painkiller. Like there's a business here that I would be a painkiller. I'm not going to be a vitamin. People are going to need me because they're, they're, they have a pain point that I could solve. But I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I didn't quite understand enough about the business side of how we made business. How do we do marketing? So I just focused on growing my skill set, keep getting promoted, keep getting more challenges of working with some of our biggest customers there at my last company, um, getting exposed to more corporate development, business development stuff. 
And in 2019, fall of 2019, I realized it was time. I, I had been working with a lot of startup founders and it, it showed me as I worked with startup founders that like I was kind of putting them on a pedestal. I was thinking that they were these super intelligent, super smart people. And I'm like, man, these are just people that just tried hard and took a risk. And like, I don't think I'm the smartest dude in the world. But I was like, I'm hanging like I'm in the same conversations. And um, that gave me some confidence. And then the other aspect was I realized as well um, I realized two things. One, I had a ton of knowledge in this space. Like I knew what I was talking about. I knew what I was doing. And I knew that the way that we were going about it at the company I was at was not the right way. Like that we, we were doing things extremely manual and I knew we could bring software to this problem. And I was pretty comfortable that I knew exactly how to solve the problem. And of course, I've learned over the last two years better ways to do it. But the domain expertise that I had in this problem is a real reason why I think I've been successful. And the reason I say that is because I think a lot of people rush to start businesses without truly understanding the problem. And you shouldn't go out to start a business. You should go out to solve a problem. Uh, and if you're going out to solve a problem, you probably have some passion and some knowledge behind that problem. And you can build a business around that. And a lot of times I see people chasing a business idea and not solving a problem. And, and one of the things that have gave me a lot of success is I know the problem I'm solving and I know it well. And then the other reason, the real reason that keeps me going is I wanted to give back, man. Like I didn't have that same selfless service I felt when I was in the military. I didn't, I, I, despite making all the money I was making, doing all the traveling, buying all the shoes, doing all the things, like I wasn't fulfilled. I didn't feel the same level of fulfillment that I felt when I was serving and doing something bigger than myself. And I wanted a way to give back. I saw that this tech space, there's an opportunity for veterans and minorities uh, to do very well, to change the trajectory of their life by working in this field. And I wanted, I knew I was, despite being in a senior level executive position, I was not in a position to really impact people at scale and change people's lives. And that's my second purpose as a founder. The, the founder of BET and now this Equity Partners, Robert Smith says, all founders should have a second purpose. You should have something else beyond like the financial outcome for why you do it. And for me, it's leaving an impact on black young black kids that want to be founders, that want to be entrepreneurs and that want to get into tech and do it in a manner where they can wear their gold chains. They can wear the shoes they want to. They can be themselves, listen to the music that they want to listen to. And they see me as that example. They see me as that person that is not a software engineer that started a software company uh, and say, hey, I could do that. I could go out here and, and, and do something like that. And that's what keeps me going is, is being able to build up the next generation and hopefully you know i can create multiple millionaires through the process of this and and, and and increase some of the wealth gaps that are exist in this in a society so that we can continue to move move the country forward and and, and just take advantage of what i think is a tech revolution right now um, that i hope more of our people can can get access to me and you uh kind of carry the same <coughs> philosophy right you rock the gold chain i rock the beard and mohawk fade you know we like to show up as comfortable as we can in our own skin and be really dope at what we do. You know, I like that saying, uh, Cal Newport, Steve Martin, be so good, they can't ignore you. So one of the things I want to ask you is, you've decided to go the venture-backed tech startup route. What made you go that route versus, oh, I'm going to start a consulting business, or I'm going to build some kind of advisory firm? Talk to our listeners about that. Yeah, it really came down to a simple decision of, do I want to build a decent sized business that is going to make you know millions of dollars or do i want to build a billion dollar business and the way to build a billion dollar business is to get venture capital to accelerate you and to get there faster um and that was really what the decision came down to is i knew that if i was going to do this at the scale that i wanted to and do it at the speed that this market is moving um, because it is a super competitive market with a lot of other software solutions 
I needed to get money in the bank because without it, you know, I'm, I'm in a gunfight with the knife. Uh, and I'm fighting against people that have, even though we raised $3 million, my competitors have raised a hundred million. Another has raised 50 million, another 35 million. So I'm still not on the same level playing field, but I knew to even catch up to them and build this billion dollar company that I'm confident we're building. We needed to get the venture capital. We needed to get, uh, that, that support and that fuel to keep growing. And Fortunately, you know, the investors that have invested in ByteCheck are 80% of them are black led funds or black um, angel investors and they're people and or other funds that are solely dedicated to helping founders like myself um, that are veterans that are black that come from backgrounds that aren't your traditional Ivy League Bay Area schools. Um, and I'm I have passion and pride now in the fact that they bet on me. And if this works out, they're going to get a big win out of it, too. Um, and these are people that look like me and that are trying to help others that look like me. So I take the the responsibility of being venture backed very serious from the point of I know that if this works out, the impact that it can have on more founders moving forward is um, is going to be great. So that was a part of the decision, man. It's all about how big do I want this to go and how fast do I want to get there. And being venture backed allows you to grow a really big business. You know, billion dollar business is what I'm trying to build um, and do it in a manner that keeps up with technology and the way the market's moving. Talk to us about your fundraising process. I read the article, I think it was from TP Insights, about how much challenge you had despite being a D1 athlete, Army officer, God knows how much experience on the compliance side, and you still ran up against it. Yeah, man, that it was frustrating. Honestly, it was really tough. It's a mental, that's a that's a whole mental journey in and of itself of raising capital because you're constantly being told no. You constantly told your baby's ugly. Um, and you're the one that made the ugly baby <laughs> and you know, that nobody wants to to play with it. So um, it's hard. And the and the hard part is that sometimes you're going through the process and I can just tell that me being black is a problem. Uh, I was in a meeting one time with an investor and I had a Black Lives Matter shirt on. And three times through the meeting, he asked me, what does Black Lives Matter mean to me? In the middle of me talking about my business, in the middle of me talking about revenue or customers or the product, it's like, oh, what does that mean on your shirt? What, what, what does that mean to you? So finally, I'm just like, what are you asking? You know, what are you, what are you asking? He's like, well, how important is that to you? Or is that going to be a problem? And I'm like, well, I'm black. I, I have two black kids. Um, so their lives matter. My life matters. And, and I hope that in, we all in this room would be in agreement here. Um, obviously, that person did not invest in Bite Check. The conversation kind of deteriorated from there. But that's the type of stuff you got to go through as a founder where you're constantly justifying who you are and what you believe in. Uh, I talked to a fund who their whole thesis was uh, they invest in former military officers and former D1 athletes. I'm like, I'm great. I'm checkbox. We're good to go here. They flew down to Miami, went through the whole thing with me, only to find out at the end that they said, you know, we don't fit the we don't fit the thesis. It's it's not it's not the type of company that they would invest in. Um, and you can go take a look at. I, I went to go look at their portfolio and I understood what that meant. Um, I didn't. I personally did not look like the rest of the portfolio. Um, so there's those things that you go through. But one of the things that I learned through the process is a couple of things. Most venture capitalists you're talking to are trying to get to know. They're trying to figure out how to tell, convince themselves that it is not a good thing to bet on. So when you kind of remove yourself from that and remove yourself from it's not about you as a person, which sometimes it is of you being black, but you you got to just flush that and keep it pushing because um, there's more people out there. You know, the, the, one of the messages that I hope to share that you saw in the article for for black founders um, and underrepresented founders is that there's enough funds out there. There's enough people out there that will invest in you. Just they don't care that you're black. And that's what happened to me is we I was fortunate to get 
some really strong investors that want to invest in someone that's black, that understands my story, understands what I've gone through. Um, and that was dope. That was really dope for me to experience. Um, when you start to talk to the people that care more about your product and your business model and your vision and who you are and my experience, not the lack of things that I have, but the experience that I actually do have, it changes things and it helps you really refine your story. And you just got to find your tribe. Um, and, and you know, the one thing to think about, too, with, with funding, and I tell people this, too, like, I don't want anyone to think like it's charity. Like, even though these people are dedicated to investing in black people and underrepresented founders, I still had to build a real business with the real possibility to grow into a billion dollar company. And you still got to do that. But when you find your tribe, you can start to focus in those investment pitches about your business, about who you are as a person and what you know, not defending that you're black, not defending. I had to defend in one meeting that I went to Florida State and played basketball um, because I didn't go to one of these other schools and major in computer science. And like, you don't have to do that. Like, there's enough funds out there that you can go to that are in your circle that will invest in you. Um, that that will do it. And, and you just have to understand it is a true marathon, man. Like 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 Nip the Great says, it's the marathon continues and you have to really focus on just keep going. I got 53 no's before my first yes um, during this fundraise. And my mindset was like, I don't care how many no's I get. I, I just need a yes. And then once you get one yes, they kind of just snowball. And you got to understand that that's a part of the process. Getting told no a lot is a part of the process and you just keep going and keep going until you break through. How intentional do you think entrepreneurs need to be with who they're trying to raise capital from? So, you know, part of it is you don't know what you don't know. But again, some people is hidden in plain sight. You know, you go on their website and you look at their portfolio of companies and you're like, I haven't really seen too many people of color here. I don't know what my chances are versus getting a recommendation from someone like you and saying, hey, check out these firms, check out these portfolios, see if they're a good fit. You know, what are your thoughts on that? You got to be super strategic. One thing founders should know is that every venture capitalist firm will take a meeting. You'll get a meeting with anybody. The, the problem is you'll get a meeting with you could be building a, a business to business software company and you'll go meet with an investor that only invests in consumer products on social media. There is no chance they're invested in you. Zero chance. But they'll meet with you just because they like to talk to founders. It's a complete waste of your time as a founder. So don't you know, I get people reach out to me even now post our raise. And I just respond like, hey, what is your thesis? Like, who do you invest in? Because there's no point in us having any conversation if we don't fit the bill. And, and a lot of it is stage. It's what stage of the company you're in, what vertical or industry you're in. But then, like you said, go to their website, <laughs> take a look. You know, they may say that they're investing in a certain type of founders or people. But if you go look at their website and it's very clear who they're investing in and you look at the backgrounds of those people, you might be wasting your time. So. 100% be strategic because there are a bunch of firms out there and you'll waste your time speaking to every single one. And it's not, don't think you're playing the numbers game. You're not, you're, you're just literally checking off a box for that associate or whoever that you met with to meet with the founder for the day. And it's not adding any value to your raise or um, to, to their portfolio either. So you're at the one yard line, right? You've already got 52 no's, right? But you're right there at the one yard line, ready to run into the end zone, got your pitch deck ready to go, right? What was it that allowed you to convey confidence to these investors that you were worthy of investment? I think I learned how to tell the story better. Um, you storytelling is a secret weapon of a founder. Uh, being able to communicate in a version the way that you learned as a kid via via nursery rhymes, via uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and painting that picture and tapping into the emotional impact of your investor because a lot of times in the early days you forget that these are people 
there's a there's a person on the other end even though it's an investor and he's, they're investing in a bunch of bunch of funds a bunch of other people's money into businesses it's still a human making this decision so you have to talk human to human remove yourself from being the expert that's one of the things that i had to do because what we do is a very niche service with cybersecurity compliance i had to stop talking like an expert I had to stop talking like I was talking to a bunch of people that were living and breathing in the space that I'm in and really break it down in a manner that they understood and tell the story of where we're at, where we're going and how I think we're going to get there. And I think that's what what helped. The other the other thing that, you know, helps get you across that finish line is treating the raise like a significant part of the business. Um, when I first started raising back in early 2021 and then we had a, a break in there where we weren't raising uh, I didn't treat it that seriously. I didn't take it as seriously as other founders told me to and other investors that told me to. I thought I could just kind of do it on the side while trying to grow the business. You have to really treat it like a significant part of your business. That means tracking it. That means doing follow-ups. That means doing meetings about it and putting a whole process around the entire raise because our lead investor who ended up investing in us, he had a bunch of requests during the process. If I let those fall through the cracks and wasn't responsive or wasn't providing the information that they need to make that decision, who knows if we're even here to this day? Um, the only reason I was able to do that is because I treated it like a very important part of it. Um, so I would say storytelling is a key. You got to learn how to tell that story. And then you have to really treat it serious and build systems around your raise, track the investor calls, track who you speak to, track the follow-ups, make sure that you're being really aggressive about the raise and applying pressure because they're talking to a bunch of companies. It's like getting a job. You got to really want it and understand that you're one of many at that stage. You're one of many people trying to pitch. And if you really, if you find an investor that you really want to work with, that you want to invest in your company, you got to go all in and try to get that person to commit to, to be that investor. And um, it goes from there. So um, it took me a while. You know, I think a part of the first 52 no's were because I wasn't telling my, telling my story correctly. I was too deep into the weeds. I didn't have the rhythm down. But once I really tapped into the, what I thought was a good story, things started to improve from there. I want to use this as a teachable moment for our listeners. So what AJ is talking about is in any business, right? There's a core component of the business, right? If you are raising venture capital, that's a core component of your business because you need it to build product. So you've got to build systems around that. Having a CRM, you know, having a list of your dream 100 uh, potential investors, whether they're a venture capital fund or angel investors, mapping out what you're sending to people. You know, do they need a deck? Do they need a, a PDF overview? Do we have our financials? Do we have all of these things? And really starting to create a process around that to allow you to be more efficient as you go out on your fundraise. Because again, it's hard to do it in tandem. Like, oh, I'm about to build this business and I'm gonna go fundraise over here every now and then. No, it's like, hey, I'm the founder. I've gotta go and raise this capital. We need to build a process around it. So you can start now, open up a Google Sheet, you know, start putting a list of your best uh, chances of raising, put a little information about them and go out there and get after it. Yep, that's facts. You got to treat it like a significant part and put those processes around it. Um, I think that's the biggest mistake a lot of people make because they can do it on the side and you cannot. So talk to us about, okay, so you raised that initial capital. Where was your first check from? Was it from the venture firm or was it from angel investors? Yeah, so actually in March of 2020, we raised 500K and that 500K came from uh, Chris Singleton, one of my old teammates at Florida State. He played in the NBA for a while and now plays overseas. 
Um, so he, you know, my dog, I was in his wedding and um, good friends. He and he gave us the first check. And that that's what got us from March 2020 through November of 2021. Uh, and the first yes that we received was from a big VC firm, Authentic Ventures, our lead investor. They invested a million dollars in the round um, and um, really kicked off the round. Right. Kicked off what uh, what we uh, what we what we needed to like get other investors um, interested in. And usually that's how it works. Once your lead investor hops in, everybody follows. Uh, everybody kind of like thinks, sees like, okay, this is serious. Um, and then from there, it was a bunch of angel investors and some other funds as well uh, that participated in the round. So in terms of your business acumen, you know, coming from the corporate side of the house, now you're running a startup. Where is it, Where are you getting your business acumen from in a sense of, managing a startup, raising capital. I'm sure you've got someone, you know, board seats and all that other stuff, right? So how are you navigating that? YouTube University. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, it's a lot of reading, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of books, a lot of um, just understanding that I'm not going to know a lot. And instead of trying to act like I do, acknowledging that I don't know and then going out and finding the information. So I tell people the the raise from, and it's not even just the raise. So February, I'll give you a little bit of background. February, 2021, we started raising our seed round. We took in a couple angel convertible notes, and then we got approached to get acquired. Um, and I signed a letter of intent to sell bite check six months after we started, you know, I was going to be a millionaire, take care of the family. Everybody was going to be good. Everybody was going to get a win out of this. 48 hours before the deal closed, before the check was supposed to wire, they pulled out um, of the deal. Uh, and I went through the whole due diligence, mergers and acquisition process, and I learned a lot. And then after that, kicked off the, the seed round. Um, I actually had a co-founder that I, that I had to let go and, and, and fire during that time as well. Uh, so I had to go through legal nonsense, mergers and acquisitions, due diligence, and then the raise of raising a seed round from pretty institutional investors uh, that required a whole lot of corporate governance and, and now running a board, having a board of directors. I'm just learning on the fly, man. Like I'm literally building the plane as we're going, as we're flying it, um, which is the beauty of it all, because I've gotten really comfortable with not knowing. I gotten really comfortable with understanding that there's some things I don't know and I go out and do the research or I rely on people that are way smarter than me to break it down into uh, uh, digestible bites so that I can make a decision. Um, but most, you know, in the early days, I read a lot of books, you know, this book called The Startup Checklist. Uh, that really walks you through all the things that you need. A lot of books about venture capital and understanding the space and how to build strong SaaS companies, taking courses on HubSpot Academy, a whole lot of YouTube, uh, and just digesting a bunch of information about topics I typically don't dive into. Like, and I'll give you an example. Right now, I'm reading a bunch of corporate finance and business finance books because a lot of the metrics I report on are numbers that I just didn't think about or talk about before. And really, I want to understand the why behind those numbers. And I'm sure as the company grows, there's going to be new things that develop that I'm going to have to go out and learn and read about. And uh, I'm excited about that. I love that process of not knowing and then acquiring knowledge and implementing it really quickly, which I think is a critical skill as an entrepreneur. Why do you think the acquiring company pulled the LOI? Oh, they... Um, they got spooked uh, because of my non-compete from my previous company that I was at. They, they had a private equity firm that got scared by that. And they started trying to negotiate the price. And I just was like, hey, man, like, I don't have to do this. Um, I don't have to sell right now. I'm not going to do this back and forth. You already wasted a lot of our time. Um, and they try to keep negotiating the price. And I eventually said, I'm going to walk away. And, you know, the deal fell through. But it, it happened 48 hours before it was supposed to close. It was 
and which is crazy because they knew about the non-compete before. So I think it was more of like a, a, a business negotiation tactic, but um, I knew what we were worth. Um, and I knew that uh, even though it would have been a win, even though it would have been a win for me personally, I have bigger sights on what I think this can be. Um, so I, I was very comfortable walking away and going out and building it. And a lot of it too was, you know, they were kind of bleeding us out and, and I'm still, I don't know. If, I, I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but they were bleeding this out to the point where like Bite Check was going to struggle to exist because we were stopped growing the business while we were going through this acquisition process. And my thought process towards the end was I didn't want to Bite Check to die without me fighting. Like I wanted to go If we were going to die, like, let's go out fighting. Let's at least give it give it a shot and not waiting on something else to happen. Um, so it kind of came to that head where like, you know, that that Diddy meme out there where he's staring at the dude and they're staring back and forth. And eventually I'm like, all right, man, like I'll I, like I'm I'm serious. I will walk away from this thing. And 48 hours before they kind of thought they were calling my bluff and, and the deal fell through. So um, I'm grateful for it, though, because uh, the number that they were going to buy us at we're, we're valued at significantly more now. Um, so it's, it was a blessing. Um, it, it sucked in the moment and didn't feel good. But it's been the, probably the best thing that's happened to me in the last few years. That's great. And one of the things you talked about was while you're dealing with all this is taking you away from focusing on growing the company and arguably probably the same thing around fundraising. So talk to us about actually building bite check, right? Like how are you driving revenue? What has that process been like for you all and uh, getting that traction? Yeah. So the biggest thing with bite check is our software product, you know, our, our SaaS solution that helps automate the entire process. So, uh, in the early days, I focused the most on just building an MVP, building a minimum viable solution for people to get value. Um, and then from there, just we've continued to iterate and iterate the product to where now we have a pretty strong product that is attracting customers to pay annual subscriptions. We sell annual subscriptions, which VCs love. If you're trying to get venture back, the subscription-based revenue is the easiest way to do that um, because there are some clear indicators of, of future growth, growth when you do subscription-based revenue. Um, and one of the things I did in the early days that was super important and, and I only did it because of COVID-19 is I started building my brand on LinkedIn. One of the things I, my, had, I had plans to do between March and September, November, when we were going to launch the company was become known for cybersecurity, become known for the guy about cybersecurity compliance. I was going to go speak at engagements, be in the community, doing all these things. And then the pandemic hits and I'm like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get the word out about that. I know what I'm talking about. So I got on LinkedIn, took some LinkedIn courses to really build my personal brand. That has resulted in a number, just some crazy things. I was a LinkedIn top voice in 2020, the number four voice in technology in the world. Um, I was able to become a LinkedIn learning instructor where I'm teaching a SOC 2 course. Uh, this year, I participated in the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program where they gave me $15,000 to create on LinkedIn and um, boost me in front of their ecosystem. And a lot of our inbound leads come from LinkedIn. Uh, come from me just constantly posting and being seen as an expert all through that platform. And it's because of the focus I did. So a lot, a lot of things, if there's like an underlying lesson there, the things that you do in a crisis are things you probably should be doing anyways. Uh, I probably should have been building my brand on LinkedIn no matter what, but COVID-19 forced me to do it, which I'm grateful it did. But I, I constantly am asking myself, what are the things that I'm ignoring because I'm comfortable? Uh, and, and, and how do I stop that and start to do the things that I should be doing and I would do if there was a crisis or some kind of panic. Um, so a lot of our leads, the way that we're generating business is coming all through inbound, which is great. But now that we have this raise, we're building out our sales function and 
um, really starting to do the basics of sales and marketing. Jameson, your last guest on the pod, um, is helping me out a lot there and, and just communicating our value better. Um, we're in a super competitive market. We're in a super mar a market where there's a lot of other people. And I think what we're doing is completely disrupting this industry. We're completely flipping the industry on its head and taking on some really big players. And when you're disrupting the industry, you really have to get your messaging down. You really have to make sure that you're communicating your value prop very well so that people understand that it's not A versus A. It's, it's really apples and oranges. You're not comparing the same thing because we are completely shifting the entire model in the cybersecurity compliance space. Um, and that's a lot of what we're working on right now to continue the growth. But I've been fortunate to be able to really grow the business and get traction through my personal brand. I, I teach a cybersecurity course at the Sands Institute, the biggest cybersecurity institute out there. I do a ton of podcasts and speaking engagements and keynotes out there to get the word out. Um, so I put a lot of work in my personal brand to to help us grow the business um, and to be public about what we're doing. And I take pride in being the only founder in this space that actually has worked in this space, that actually has been a security auditor, that actually was doing signal and cyber stuff in the military. Uh, and and um, it's important for me to be out there because it helps drive revenue. Can you give our listeners how you're approaching the 10x, the 100x growth, because I know when you start raising capital, right, you're kind of the clock's ticking. So what mm -hmm. will, you know, is OK in like a small business is not necessarily what they're looking for in a startup. So, you know, while you're driving growth, you're leveraging your personal brand. How are you thinking about achieving that, that again, that 10x, that 100x growth? Yeah, the first thing is investing in people. You know, you you get venture capital to go hire <laughs> and to go hire really good people. It's 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 a weird thing when you're going from where we were before, where I was making 500K stretch for as long as I can and being very frugal with how we spent to now it's like spend more money. Like the messages keep spending, 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 spend to grow. Um, so uh, a lot of it is just going out and hiring and, and hiring the right people to help us grow. The other aspect is there's a saying out there that the riches are in the niches. Uh, and that I am one of the things I'm focused on right now is identifying and figuring out our strategy that we're going to focus on over the next nine to 12 months to really lock in and on and, and grow the company. Um, so we're going to, you know, make some strategic decisions. And it's just about experimenting and, and finding out what works and then doubling and tripling down on that. Um, so at this stage, at the seed stage, you know, you're you're supposed to hit that 10x, 100x. But Luckily, I have some really great investors that are patient and they're in here for the long haul. And they understand that we're going to figure out the areas that we're going to be able to win and win consistently in this industry uh, and be able to do some really cool things in this industry. Uh, but it takes some focus. It takes some strategic intent. You can't just grow for the sake of growth once you once you get venture back. There has to be a story behind the growth. There has to be a thing that you can point to that says, we're winning in this vertical, we're winning in this industry, and we're going to keep winning there for a very long time because that's how you continue to grow, continue to get further on Series A, Series B investments, um, which is the, you know, the trajectory that we're headed. So I'm a big fan of Jim Collins, right? He wrote the Good to Great series, yep. Great by Choice, et cetera. And one of the things yep. he talks about is this BHAG, that big, hairy, audacious goal. So as you start looking towards the future, what is the BHAG of Bite Check? Yeah, we're going to be a billion dollar company, uh, a multiple billion dollar company. And I'm super confident in that outcome. Uh, and I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Uh, and um, sometimes I, me saying that has caught people off guard. And they're like, well, you know, 
you shouldn't say that, AJ. You shouldn't be that, blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I I 100% believe in the fact that we're going to be a billion-dollar company uh, and grow a really big company and show people that you can do it by putting people first and by focusing on culture and caring about your employees and not growing to a billion dollars without the uh, on the backs of people that are burnt out and want to quit and never want to work in this industry again. We're going to have a lot of fun doing it. Um, and I'm very confident in that. I, I, I told people recently that like when we do reach that unicorn status and they're like, oh, bite checks a unicorn. You're not going to see a quote from me that says, I can't believe this happened because I knew it was going to happen. And that's been the plan the whole time since I started building this thing back in March, 2020. That's, that's always been there. Um, that's always been the focus. And it's, and yes, there's a number there that I'm pointing at that billion dollars. But what, what I want that to signify is that you can build a successful business in the manner that we're doing it with the people that we're doing it, looking the way that we do <clears throat> and doing it, how we're doing it from a people perspective um, and, and just not caring about the typical norms of doing this stuff. And um, I'm excited about that. So that's the big one for Bitecheck is, is we're going to be a billion dollar company. It's not going to be a surprise for people that have been following me and been around for me because I've been saying it for a while that this is where we're going. Now, one thing I'm cognizant of is I haven't been talking much about family. You know, because like I'm I'm not married yet. I don't have any kids. But, you know, a lot of our listeners, they are trying to navigate these early stage startups and small businesses, and they are balancing having a family. Talk to us about your family and how you've been able to, you know, one of the things we talked about early on was mental health, because I can only imagine how when you have a stressful day, you know, co-founder falling aside, LOI going, you know, you're putting the LOI and yet you still have to show up and be dad. You know, talk to us about that. Yeah, man, it's um, the most important thing in my life is surprisingly not bike check. It's my two little ones. I got a son, a five-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter who, you know, are the reasons, big reasons why I keep going. But they're also a reason why I'm able to take a break constantly because there's there's something that's really cool about kids that age is they don't really care about what you do for a living. Uh, so they don't care about bike check. They don't care if I had a good day or a bad day. They just want to play with Legos. Or they just want to go outside and, and, and play with their dad and they allowed me to escape. One of the things that happened with the pandemic and with Bitecheck is, you know, I saved up a ton of money to do this and to go out and build this. And then the pandemic shut down daycares. So all the money I saved, um, it extended a lot longer. You know, daycare is a really expensive <laughs> um, expense. So I was able to, 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 to keep my nest egg a little bit longer and take that big pay cut I took for a little bit longer. Um, which was a blessing, but it also meant the kids were at home, right? And I had to deal with that on a daily basis of trying to build a startup at the same time of having two toddlers at home. And what it made me do was focus on the basics. Again, it's another one of those crises make you do the things that you should do. So I started to really focus on my sleep. I had to get a lot of sleep because I had to wake up super early to put the work in before my kids woke up. And when I was with my kids, it was intentional attention of I'm locked in with you because I wanted to make them tired. <laughs> I had to make them sleepy so that they would take that afternoon nap so I can get more work done. Um, and then just being really strategic with how I'm spending time with them and making sure that, and, and that was in the early days. And now what the focus is like, when I'm with them, I know I don't have as much time as I used to. I know I'm not spending as much time because I'm working these 14, 16 hour days most days. So that means when I'm with them, I'm locked in. The phone's away. I'm really focused on them. It's all focused about my kids on the weekends when, I, when I'm when i with them. It's just like completely focused on them. And, and I think it's made me a better father. I think the time I spend with them now is much more dedicated and focused than when I was trying to like halfway work, halfway be around them. Um, so it's been great. And, and they're really, you know, a big motivation for what I do. And I think 
parents put way too much pressures on themselves. Um, this stuff is hard, man. Like, especially going through COVID, being a dad is so challenging because they constantly are shutting down the schools, constantly saying you got to send your kid home if they have a little sniffle or whatever it may be. And it's just really tough to manage the day to day of constantly working. And there's no off switch. We're all working from home. So you go from here to right out there and the kids are right out there. There's no commute home. There's no break. And I think a lot of parents forget that. They forget that this stuff is really hard. We're doing something that generations before us have not done. And I would tell any of the listeners out there, give yourself some grace. Like you are doing a good job. If you are feeling pressure about whether or not you're a good parent, that means you care. That means you actually care about this stuff and you're trying your best and just keep going. Like your kids appreciate the fact that you're trying and want to be there. And that's what I've really leaned into is that I'm doing the best job that I can and I and I truly just try to have fun and I don't bring the pressures of the day, the pressures of raising money or growing a business to my kids because they don't care. Uh, but I know I'm what I'm doing hopefully is going to change not just their lives, but their kids' lives and their kids' lives and generations. My son's a junior and I tell people all the time, like Alexander Joshua Yon the fourth is going to benefit from Bite Check. Um, this is a generational thing that I'm trying to build here. Uh, so that keeps me going because I know what I'm building is for them, but also the future, future generations of of their kids as well. Man, AJ, man, I appreciate you sharing that and uh, open up about, you know, taking care of the family and everything, because it is important. What are we doing this for? What are we all working towards? If we don't have these conversations, we can lose focus on what's really important. So it's been great having you here today. Before we let you go, I got a couple questions. Number one, what advice would you like to leave our listeners with? as they continue pursuing their own entrepreneurial journey? And number two, as a community, how can we support and elevate your efforts with Bite Check? Yeah, number one, I would say don't quit. The difference that separates me from anyone else that's trying to be a founder, that's trying to raise venture capital, that's trying to grow a big business and be able to hire some of the best talent in the world is that I didn't quit. I had a bunch of opportunities to quit. I had a bunch of chances to where I should have quit. But I just kept going. Um, I've been through every emotion of crying, of sadness, of, of, of fear, of pain as I went through this journey. But I decided that I am going somewhere. I have a destination that I'm reaching. And I don't care what happens on the journey. I don't care how many times I fall. I don't care if I get a flat tire. I'm going there. I'm going to get there. And I would just encourage if you want to do this thing, it's going to be hard and you just can't quit. you got to keep going. It's a marathon. And, and the reason why I hashtag a lot of my stuff with TMC, the marathon continues, is because this stuff is really a marathon. You do not win a marathon on mile one. <laughs> it's a 26-mile race for a reason. and you got to be willing to go through that mud. Uh, so that's the number one piece of advice. It would be don't quit. From the community, the way that you could support is, you know, when you think about cybersecurity, when you think about cybersecurity compliance, reach out to ByteCheck. Uh, we want to support other veteran-owned startups and help you on your journey. And ByteCheck can be a place that can do that. I, I want the legacy of ByteCheck to be the reason why a lot of companies were able to grow their business in a secure manner because they worked with ByteCheck in the early days. And we were able to come in there at the super early days as you're just getting started to help you build up your cybersecurity programs and do things in an intentional manner from a cyber perspective. So um, if ByteCheck can help from a cyber perspective, definitely reach out. You can follow me on all the social networks at AJON and, and support me there as well. Retweets and likes and comments are always appreciated to get the word out about what we're building. But uh, Mike, you know, I, I want to say thank you as well for having me on here. This has been dope to just uh, have a podcast where I could feel like I could be myself and just have a conversation with 
with someone who understands the journey. So I appreciate what you're doing and getting the word out to the community. And um, this has been a lot of fun. Man, you dropped a, jo- a lot of gems for our listeners. I'm telling y'all, AJ is going through it. He's raised the capital. He's going through this startup journey. So make sure you follow him and reach out to him. And uh, let's elevate the Bike Check brand. Make sure you also do me a favor and subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter at least once a week, sharing the latest episode of the Transition. Make sure you also head over to BunkerLabs.org and get plugged into the Bunker Lab ecosystem. We have programs that will incubate you, take you from idea to invoice, and position to go alongside other founders and CEOs. Uh, also, you can message me on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman or Instagram at Iron Mike Stedman as well. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.